0: Hello and welcome back to QBD Book Club, the podcast, a show brought to you by QBD Books, your favourite book retailer. I'm your host, Victoria Carthew, and I am really thrilled to present this chat today. Lying Beside You by Michael Robotham was the QBD Book of the Year for 2022. He is a fascinating man and this book is an awesome read. So let's tell you all about it. It's wonderful to have with me to talk about lying beside you, Michael Robotham. Hello and welcome.
1: Thank you, Victoria.
0: I love that that still makes you feel pretty good because it is. You have to say it right now. It's been an awesome career, but things are pretty amazing right now. Yeah,
1: I get excited every time a new book comes out, um, and it's funny when I when I started my career, I, I met a few sort of very experienced sort of writers who, who said to me, "Oh, you'll get jaded. You, you'll get sick of the writer's festivals. You'll get sick of touring or whatnot." And Hasn't happened yet. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I, I still... It's like people want to call me a veteran, and I go, don't you dare call No!
0: <laughs> no. Because it is, yeah, I mean... Uh, but I can understand why you haven't tired of that, because every single time, every single book, it's so different, isn't it, each time?
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I tried very, very hard to do right at the very beginning of my career. I, um, I wanted to never write the same book twice. You know, and, and because a lot of people have a favourite writer who they still love, really. But if they're asked the question, they go, oh yeah, it was a bit like the last one, though. I mean, and those sort of books, they're like your favourite pair of slippers. You love sort of putting those on. But I, I wanted to, you know, excite people by the fact that I don't write the same book twice. That I, I switch characters. That I, I change tenses. I change series.
0: What have the last couple of years been like for you? Every writer, every person has had a different experience, but these COVID years, in terms of writing, it looks as though you've stayed incredibly busy.
1: <laughs> well, I think you know, as, uh, um, as my wife will attest to, that uh, this hasn't changed my life a bit because I've been self-isolating for 29 years, and so um, yeah, COVID hasn't hasn't affected me at all. Really, I, I go to my my writing room, my cabana of cruelty, and um, and I make stuff up. It's what I've done for. For most of my career, people could argue when I was a journalist I was making stuff up, but I would definitely not go that far. Um, but yeah, um, apart from not touring, um, life hasn't really changed. You know, and and oddly, enough, you know. Book sales have actually gone up for many writers because people have been locked away and they've needed something to do with their time.
0: And do you think, I mean, you've you, as you say, I'm not going to use the word veteran, but you've been in this industry a long time. You've seen it grow and change and, and people that said for years that it was, the it world's going to die off. But during this time, we have seen the emergence of a lot of really great Australian, particularly crime authors, because people have had that time and have had to change their lives.
1: Yeah, I think they have. And I think it's just... Uh, it's the... It's the time was right. I mean, it wasn't that long ago I was told by an international publisher that they would be happy if I set a book anywhere in the world except Australia, because they felt as though there was no... They couldn't point to any major Australian crime novel that had been successful internationally. Wow. And I remember saying at the time, until one is, and and, um, and Jane Harper blew the doors off when, when she wrote The Dry, and now we have so many fine, fine Australian crime writers coming through. And... Um, You know, uh, and I don't see myself as a veteran. I I see myself as just getting started. And every time someone suggests any form of lifetime achievement award, I tell them, get away.
0: (laughs) Not yet. Well, you know, if you think about it, a lot of the great crime writers are well advanced in their years and have been doing this for so long. And it's almost a mark of of that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think, well, it's one of those jobs you can continue to do. I mean, and it's it's a testament to if you love it, you know. People used to say to me, oh, what would you do if you wrote a book that... Saw millions of copies, and, and, and I said, Well, I'd write another one. I said, But you wouldn't have to. You could retire, and you go, Well, you don't seem to understand. But I do this because I love it, yeah. not because, you know, um, I sell books. You know, I do, I, even if I, I didn't sell a book, I'd still be writing.
0: And you know, I think you feel that. Like, when, when I'm reading your book, you feel that because there's a, a great passion and intensity in, in what you're doing. I suppose the extension of that success we've started seeing for Australian crime authors has people have been wanting to see them on the screen. And you've had, you've had an amazing run in, in the last little while.
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got um, you know, <laughs> 17 books in. Overnight success. So mm-hmm. I think um, in the past I've had oddly enough in Germany I had seven films made out of my books in Germany. But it wasn't until a year or two ago that The Secret She Keeps was made into... Uh, Network 10 series here and it was one of the most watched shows on the BBC in the UK. And the second series of The Secret She Keeps um, goes to, I uh, think it's streaming now, but goes to air in July. Um, and and The Suspect, my first novel, has been turned into a TV series in the UK by War Productions, who who gave us The Bodyguard and Line of Duty and uh, The Bletchley Circle and Vigil. And they... Um, that will go to air in September.
0: How extraordinary to be have a book you wrote all, which was so important for your career, twenty odd years ago, to have that now finally be on the screen as well.
1: It took a while because I mean that, the suspect was optioned when I first wrote it, and when, and that book sold on a part manuscript in 2002 at the London Book Fair, and it was optioned then, and it's the options passed from film company to film company, but it, it has taken twenty years to okay, to exactly. make, and. Um, yeah, but, I mean, that's this is what can happen. You know, it can, you know, a lot of stuff. Particularly streaming services are being optioned now, and you have to wait. It's television is and films take time.
0: Is it the type of thing you talk about? How much you love your writing? Is it, was it ever? Has it ever? Is it now in the back of your mind about how it would look on the screen, or is it always the book first that that can come later?
1: Yeah, not really. I mean, Phil McDermott is a great mate of mine. And after they created the Wire and the Blood series with Robson Green playing the, the part of Tony Hill, every time she wrote a Tony Hill novel, she pictured Robson Green in the in the role. Um, now, maybe with Joel Lochman who you know the Joel Lockman series, um, Joel has been played by Aidan Turner, um, you know, better not, best known for Poldark and being that the handsome dwarf in the Hobbit movies, yes. but mainly. You know, if I, if, and I may well write another Joe Lachlan, or I will picture Aidan Turner in the role. But I don't, I mean, I don't ever think about film and TV. The only thing I will say, Victoria, is that now, when I write a scene, in the back of my mind, I will say, oh, that'll be expensive to film. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> because now you've got that know how, haven't you? Before,
1: I had no idea what, I mean, it's a bit like if you create a rainy day, you just think it's a rainy day. And, yeah. and, and uh, you know, when it's in, in, in the film world, Rain costs a lot of money to create. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. And just to, I guess, digress just a little bit, and we can name drop a little bit, you've now seen a lot of great TV sets, haven't you, because of some of your mates like Michael Connolly. You've had some exposure to so much of this now.
1: And and what I've discovered in all that, the main lesson I've discovered, is that I'm very glad that I'm a novelist. You know, um, because, um, and this is going to sound really conceited, because as a writer, I am God. And so yeah, like there is nothing that goes in, in a book that I don't agree with. I mean, I can have editors that are telling me, making suggestions and I'd be mad to ignore them, but ultimately it's my say. But when you work in TV and film, you get network notes, distributor notes, director notes, actor notes, mm-hmm. you know, um, network notes, and it's all these people, what I have their say? And I just don't think I play well with others. <laughs>
0: I like that. I am God. No, I think that's great. I think you can roll with that. <laughs> you have written some extraordinary tales over the years, remarkable stories, dark stories. Were these always percolating in your in your mind or was it your, your days as a journalist and ghostwriter that you kind of picked up stories along the way that you held on to? Where did it come from? Where does it come from?
1: Um, oh, the, the desire to be a writer comes from very early on. But in terms of most... Of back in the day when I, you know, decided I wanted to be a novelist, I, I felt as though I, you know... Had, Unlimited amounts of confidence and arrogance in terms of my self-belief because you do when you're young. But I felt as though I had nothing to write about. You know, I felt as though I did, hadn't lived enough. I'd grown up in very small country towns in Australia. You know, um, and then journalism took me around the world and, and now most of my ideas uh, are seeded in stories that I either covered as a journalist or, you know, I'm still a news junkie so I devour you know, four or five newspapers a day and I I pick out, little at paragraphs here and there, and I cut them out and go, "Oh, that might be, that might be something," and I collect them.
0: So there's there's a board with those stories on them, or it's so much board.
1: It's sort of like I know with a, with a book like Life or Death, um, that began that, you know, it was a two paragraph story about a man who escapes from prison the day before he's due to be released, you know, having served two life sentences for murder, you know. Um, and, and it's a true story. You escape and you think, why? Why would someone escape from prison the day before they're due to be released? And I carried that, that clipping around with me for 20 years until I came up with a reason, and that became the novel Life or Death. Um, so it, they don't so much go up on a board. It's, it's more like they gnaw away at me, and questions of what if question gnaws away at me until finally I think of... Um, Maybe there's a story I can tell. It's funny, uh, uh, Stephen King has, has always been very, very kind to me and actually tweeted he tweeted only three or four days ago about lying beside you and, and said uh, lovely things about it. But he likened it to when you walk along the road and you see a bone sticking out of the ground and you begin brushing dirt away, like an archaeologist would. And sometimes it's just a dog bone, in which case that's not going to make a novel. But sometimes it's a dinosaur. That's going to make a novel.
0: It's that time of year. Our catalogue is out now for the mums and the other great women in your life. A book absolutely is the gift that keeps on giving. It gives that woman in your life, your mum, your grandma, your carer, time out. I reckon they've earned it. So take a look at the QBD Mother's Day catalogue out now. That's why he's also a great writer because that's such a great line isn't it <laughs> well onto lying beside you thank you so much for bringing these two characters back to us again we see we meet Cyrus Haven and Eva Cormack again when you began with they're such unique characters they've got such rich stories and, and backstories and you've slowly unraveled them to us did you always know when you started with this it was going to be this many books this is what I'm going to do or has it Evolved.
1: Honestly, Victoria, I finish every novel thinking it will be the last one I write because all the ideas are gone, and the and the one liners and the descriptions, and I'm an empty vessel, and I'll have to get a proper job. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but I know when I wrote Good Girl, Bad Girl, I realised at the end of that that I hadn't, you know, Edie Cormac as this damaged young girl found hiding in a in a secret room, you know. Uh, nearby a man has been tortured to death and she never reveals her, her name or her age and she's given the name Evie Cormack by the courts. And at the very end of Good Girl, Bad Girl, you learn a lot about Evie, but you never learn the whole story. And so I knew there had to be a second novel there, uh, Good Girl, Bad Girl. And I guess following on from that, you know, Evie has this unique ability to be able to tell when someone's lying and, um, and it's not a superpower. And it's not a gift, it's, it's an absolute burden. It's, it's a cruel thing to inflict upon someone because we lie to each other, particularly the people we love all the time. And so um, I wanted to explore what it would be like for someone like Evie to grow up having this burden. Um, and I similarly with, with Cyrus Haven, who has a tragic backstory himself, having lost his parents and twin sisters, you know, murdered when he was only 13 years old. I wanted to explore what, what it's like for someone like Cyrus to grow up with that burden, And I think these two damaged people have found each other and perhaps they can save each other.
0: It's, it is a really powerful story and I love the way, I presume this was obviously intentional, you, you give us those pieces right at the beginning. So if you've never picked up the previous books, you can pick this up and immediately fill with them. I actually, I already knew Cyrus, but that first chapter I had a little, because I really felt for him because you gave us his story again.
1: Yeah, I think that was the... I mean, what I'm trying to do with the series is um, people don't have to read them um, in order because mm-hmm. each can be picked up and read as a standard. It's not like a sort of Game of Thrones where you need to know all the past history <laughs> before you get to, you know, um, to the next battle. This is... Uh, these, are, these are standalone novels, but um, one of the great challenges in, in a case of that is to reintroduce these characters... Um, so the people who have read the previous books aren't bored by this sort of exposition, this backstory, and people who haven't read the books before can straight away go, "Oh, I love these
0: characters." And you start us off, obviously, letting us know how what, where Cyrus is up to. But this is a big book for him because his life is about to change, isn't it? Because the life he left behind, in a lot of ways, is coming back to him.
1: Yeah, in this case, I mean, in, in terms of Cyrus's backstory you know, having lost his parents and twin sisters, you know, they were murdered by his older brother, Elias, who has spent 20 years in a secure psychiatric hospital. And lying beside you opens with Elias making an application to be released from Rampton and to be allowed to live a normal life. And so straight away, Cyrus has to decide, and he's a forensic psychologist. Of all the people in the world, he should be able to understand mental illness and be able to forgive his brother for what he did. But that's a huge ask, isn't it? A huge ask to welcome this man back into your life when he destroyed your childhood so, so, so appallingly.
0: And I love the honesty with which you deal with that because you're right, you'd think being in that role he would be able to do that. But you you kind of, you don't gloss over it, you don't make it pretty. You're very honest in the way you manage that.
1: Yeah, because I think Cyrus, you know, it's like anything else, isn't it? I mean, logic. We're, this, this is the, this is the sort of cognitive dissonance that we all face. I mean, when logic tells us one thing, you know, but our heart tells us another, you know. As you know, what we listen to, whether we listen to our head or we listen to our heart, and we face those sort of battles all the time, you know. Um, and um, and Cyrus is facing that. battle. I mean, this novel very much is a novel about forgiveness. I mean, whether. Not just for the Cyrus and forgive, but the crime at the heart of the book is also about, you know, what happens when people don't forgive past mistakes.
0: And then, of course, Evie—he he does kind of—he collects people a little bit. Cyrus doesn't he? He's such a, such a caring fellow in so many ways. Um, and then we've got Evie's story, which he, there's obviously a case going on. This is a book with a case as well.
1: Yeah, I wanted to Cyrus to get back because he became a forensic psychologist, perhaps because of what happened to his, his um, parents and twin sisters. And he forensic psychologists work with the police, so I wanted to get back to, to writing about what he did as his day job. And then, you know, Evie now... I guess, you know, the reason Cyrus has collected Evie in that sense, you know, is because he understands that Evie is going to have a difficult life and is always going to struggle and so wants to keep it close. And, and I like that relationship because it's clear that Evie has every reason, given what's happened to her in the past, to never trust another man ever again and yet in Cyrus she's found someone she can trust perhaps because she recognises that he's potentially even more damaged than she is um, so yeah I think it's it's interesting watching the two of them together because she obviously wants
0: something more yeah there's a little there's a yearning or an, an angst to sort of there but you just sit on the edge of it yeah
1: well I mean because it's this issue of transference you know and a lot of people this issue of people falling in love with their therapist or psychologist because you know, it's a very attractive thing to have someone listen to you um, without judgment, to just listen to you. And because, in particular, for a lot of women, you know, they don't have a figure in their life that will simply just listen to them vent and, and hear. So it's very easy to, to, to feel that there's something more going on, and someone. And so for for Evie, I think she hopes or thinks there's something more, but Cyrus realizes there can never be anything more.
0: I thought it was really interesting when you talked about uh, Evie and and her. It's not a superpower; it's that burden of knowing when someone's lying. Just the way you use that throughout the book, because what the way she uses that, it really um, reveals, I suppose, certain key elements of the book of the story, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, initially, it's funny. I've I've been fascinated by lying for for many, many years, um, and and read a whole lot of books on the whole search for truth wizards, and you know, um, and. You know, in the case of um, someone like Evie, you know, she does it. people like her do exist that have this ability. You know, they're very rare, you know, and often um, they're very damaged. But normally if you know, as a crime writer, if you create a character and tell them someone's blind, you're on track to write the shortest crime novel <laughs> in history. You know, and so the only way I can make it work really is for Evie to be so damaged and also such a pathological liar yeah you know that you know she's so you know she's so self-destructive that really no one believes her when she does point out the fact that you know no 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 he's lying why would they believe Evie because she lies so much
0: the way you write her and I really love the way you shape the books because your chapters you you give us enough of her that you like at the end of every chapter of Evie because you write Cyrus and Evie chapters at the end of every Evie chapter I'm like oh I felt like I just hang on a minute, and you, you know, and then you, you don't snatch it away, but you know, then we're moving on. So you're constantly always wanting to keep that. It really propels you through the book.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the aim really to, to, to try to make both stories compelling, you know, and um, and to do it in the two voices, uh, and uh, and and you know, it is that classic, you know, it's that classic trick of you know, you know, you know, so. The Cliffhanger at the end of the cliffhanger to make sure that people come back after the commercial break, you know. It's that sort of thing, you know. I want, you know, and it took, I always laugh when people say, I read your book in a single setting because a part of me wants to say, it took me a year to write that (laughs) sucker. Don't do that. You off like a Big Mac and Fries, you know, chew your chapters more slowly. But no, it's, it's, um, it is about sort of hopefully people turning the pages, desperate to know what happens next.
0: The case that uh, Cyrus is, is working on, Evie eventually becomes sort of in, involved in that, but it's, I don't know, it had such great insights into um, human behaviour and, and the, the way cri- uh, crime has changed, but the way crime, people go about crimes has changed a little as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those things that, it's in, I mean, you know, a woman disappears. A man is murdered and the woman disappears in, in the opening of the book. Um... And with all of my villains, I've tried to give them a reason for being, you know, the way they are. I don't like necessarily reading books just about, I don't know, sexual psychopaths yeah. that just hunt women for, you know, and prey upon women and girls. Or um, They exist, don't get me wrong. I mean, there, there are probably more of them on the shelves of bookshops and libraries than there are in real life, but they're still dangerous people. But in each of my books, I've tried to actually not forgive what people, you know, what the villain is doing, but at least explain why they're doing it. Yeah. And I'm not expecting people to feel sympathy, but I expect them to understand where it came from, that it didn't just spring from nowhere.
0: Well, that adds the depth, doesn't it, as well? But it also partly explains why Cyrus is so bent on trying to, to fix it. He's, he's a fixer, isn't
1: he? I think that's the nature of being a psychologist. And um, it, psychologists, I mean, their job is to help people cope with the world. And people sometimes yeah. imagine... You know, and many psychologists that I've worked with over the years explain this to me. It's not about unpacking someone's entire psyche because what you're doing in that case is you're removing their defences and we all have natural defences and sometimes it's important to leave those in place. It's just getting them to the point where they can cope with the world. It's not about making them perfect people Mm -hmm. or making them blissfully happy. It's just helping them cope. And that's what you can do because ultimately... If you go in there too hard and you unpack too much, for every problem you solve, you've just created a dozen more.
0: Do you still have to do research when you're doing something like this? Or do, have you done so much of this now, talked to so many psychologists and police officers that you just kind of know where it runs?
1: I tend to know where it runs. Um, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate. Two of the books I, I wrote after my journalistic career, I was a ghostwriter. And as a ghostwriter, I worked with a brilliant psychologist, um on uh, called Paul Britton. He was, the, he was basically the pioneer of offender profiling in the UK and worked on many celebrated crimes there and helped the police solve them. And so most of my knowledge of criminal psychology and forensic psychology comes from having worked on... And many of the ideas in the books are actually cases that he worked on or or we couldn't include in the books or, or whatever. I will just dip in and out and obviously change the details yes. so that I'm not, you know, they're all fictionalised.
0: I've, I've read, so correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you've written some extraordinary characters over the year that Evie is probably one you've enjoyed writing the most because she is so different.
1: I think so. I think because she she fascinates me. I mean, I mean she makes me laugh. I mean, I, I, would, me I would hate to live with her. I mean, she would be a complete nightmare to live with because she's just so, you know... Self-destructive and, and anarchic and whatever, but she makes me laugh, and also I I just keep wanting to explore what will happen to her, and I don't know how many books I can do with it because I think there will come a point of time as she gets older where what we forgive now yeah. because she's so damaged and when, when we know what she's been through will begin to irritate rather than uh, and and I don't know how much how long I can keep her going, but for the moment um, uh, I think she just. She
0: haunts me. I can I can understand that. And I, 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 you know, there are so many little touches uh, with her character and the way you describe her to us, but quite often you just pop a line in there about it's what she doesn't know and th- some things that we so blatantly expect are common knowledge and common sense she doesn't know. That's really interesting and that you, that you even come up with those.
1: Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, I, it's really... It, it, when you, it, it's interesting. You know, it, it's like you know, having children myself and you realise at times that you mention a film or a book or you mention something and you just and you suddenly think well hold on you weren't even born when who it-
0: are the rolling stones yeah.
1: <laughs> that sort of sense of um yeah and and typically because of evie's background you know um and you know the fact that she was you know until it's still mostly mystery you know where she came from um there's so much she doesn't know and uh which helps actually you know, it helps, I think, in me, but I have to stop myself at times and, and say, no, this is either, you know, she wouldn't speak like that or she wouldn't know that sort of detail yet. you got to remember how old she is and how damaged she is and how little she's experienced. I mean, she's experienced more than most people have in, in terms of abuse in, in multiple, I mean, multiple lifetimes. So in, in one sense, she's incredibly worldly because of what she suffered, but Um, In terms of general knowledge and other things, she's she's not worldly at all.
0: I can imagine for you, um, you have to sort of almost think each day about where you're up to and what you're doing because you've got 20-year-old books being made into series, you know, debuting, you've got the book we're talking about now and you're into your next book. So you have plans well ahead for what's coming up next for you?
1: No, not well ahead. I mean, I'm I'm sort of, for the first time ever I've been writing two books um, in the sense that I've been doing another Evie book, Edie Cyrus' book, um, and also my previous book was When You Are Mine, featured a young policewoman uh, called Philomena McCarthy who came from a family of gangsters, and uh, I've been that was supposed to be a standalone, but it had such a reaction, and, and the TV rights have just been sold for that one, um, and uh, so I've been working on another Philomena book, and I'll make a decision very shortly as to which one I go ahead with and finish first.
0: Oh, what a nice choice to have. <laughs> Isn't it? And and so I guess on that, when you are writing a character, you, did you know at the beginning Evie was going to be as special as she is to you?
1: No, not really, not really. I mean, it's funny, many years ago in a book called The Wreckage, I, I introduced a young woman there called Holly, who you, you got a sense that she could tell when people were lying. But I kept saying back when I prayed with the Holly character, oh, I'd love to, 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 to do more with this. But I read crime novels, as I said earlier, I mean she would solve it within the first 15 minutes, you know. I mean, that's not going to work for me. And uh, it wasn't until I realised that Evie had to be so damaged, you know, and so vulnerable um, that I knew I could make her work.
0: Well, I think incredibly exciting for us to all wonder about what lies ahead, which is exactly, you know, what happens when we read your novels. Congratulations on lying beside you. Uh, Fantastic. I think everyone is absolutely going to love it. And I know fans of these two characters have been certainly waiting for it. So thank you for for joining us uh, on Book Club and thank you for another fantastic book. And we look forward to seeing everything on the screens. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company today on QBD Book Club, the podcast. We'll chat again soon.